Section 24 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12. Contest between Octavius and Antonius. Battle of Actium. Octavius becomes master of the state. Part 2. The first months of the year 33 were passed at Alexandria amidst licentious orgies, the rumour of which caused much resentment at Rome, where they were no doubt depicted in the darkest colours. The aim of Cleopatra, it was urged, was to wean the Roman imperator from his national ideas, to make him a foreigner and an Egyptian like herself, to render it impossible for him to show himself again in Rome. This she might perhaps easily effect, but it was more difficult for her to keep the idle voluptuary constantly occupied and constantly amused. Her personal qualities were of the most varied kind, and such as we might suppose would have been lost upon a coarse debauchee like Antonius. She was an admirable singer and musician. She was skilled in many languages and possessed of high intellectual gifts, in addition to the lighter artifices of her sex. She pampered her lover's appetites and stimulated his flagging interest with ingenious surprises and playful ridicule, sending divers, as we read, to fasten a salted fish to the bait of his angling rod, and dissolving in a cup of vinegar a pearl of inestimable value. Painters and sculptors were charged to group the illustrious pair together, and the coins of the realm represented the effigies of the two conjointly. The Roman legionary bore the name of Cleopatra on his shield like a Macedonian bodyguard. Masks were represented at court in which the versatile Plancus sank into the character of a stage buffoon and enacted the part of the sea-god Glaucus, while the princely lovers arrayed themselves as the native divinities Isis and Osiris. Meanwhile, the Senate had decreed Octavius a legitimate triumph for his successes over the Liburni and the Iapides. He had sustained an honourable wound and had recovered his reputation for personal courage, on which some slur had been cast by his unseasonable sicknesses. But the youthful hero was not impatient for the celebration of his victory, and deferred the solemnity while he kept the city in intense expectation of a national crisis by upbraiding Antonius with his foreign connection and pointing to him as an enemy to the commonwealth. Antonius, on his part, had charges also to make against his colleague. These were personal, indeed, rather than patriotic. He complained that his just spare of the spoils of Lepidus had been withheld from him, but such a complaint met with no response from the Senate and people, and Octavius could well afford to disregard it. The eastern chief began now to prepare in earnest for a final struggle. He had been collecting troops for another attack upon the Parthians. Toward the end of 33 BC, he directed his forces westward, appointing Ephesus for the rendezvous of the contingents from many provinces and nations which he summoned to his standards. Greeks, Asiatics, and Africans found themselves arrayed around him. Cleopatra appeared herself at the head of the great Egyptian navy. Her galleys were renowned for their size and splendid equipment, and combined with the resources of the eastern Mediterranean to form the largest armament 
that had ever been launched on its waters, at least since the time of Xerxes. The consuls for the year 32 were Domitius Ahenobarbus and Sosius, both of them adherents of Antonius, who had received their office according to the agreement then still existing between him and his colleague. But this advantage was balanced by the defection of some of his chief supporters. Plancus, who had consented to degrade himself for the amusement of his patron's court, now reappeared in the Senate and denounced his treachery and frivolity. This man betrayed to Octavius the testament of the renegade imperator, which he had been charged to deposit with the Vestal Virgins, and in which it seems Antonius had acknowledged the validity of Caesar's odious union with the foreigner, had declared her child Caesario to be the dictator's legitimate son, had confirmed his own donations of crowns and provinces to his bastards, and finally, had directed that his own body should be entombed by the side of Cleopatra's in the mausoleum of the Ptolemies. None could now doubt the rumors which prevailed, that he had pledged the queen in his cups to remove the government of the world to Alexandria and prostrate the gods of the capital before the monstrous deities of the Nile. Octavius was at once greeted as the true champion of the nation, the maintainer of its principles and its faith. The consuls hurried away from the city in which they found themselves ill at ease. Octavius, still moderate, still politic, refrained from declaring the impious chief a public enemy. He was content with proclaiming war against Egypt. The second term of the triumvirate had expired and he did not renew it. He directed the Senate to annul the appointment of Antonius to the next consulship and assumed it himself with Messala for the year 31. Even the handful of nobles who repaired at this crisis to the side of Antonius now urged him to dismiss Cleopatra and reduce the impending struggle to a personal contest with his rival. He replied by formally divorcing his legitimate consort and thus breaking the last legal tie that bound him to his country. He had now assembled 100,000 foot and 12,000 horse. The kings of Mauritania, of Comagini, Pamphlagonia, and Cilicia followed his banners. His fleet counted 500 large warships, some of them with eight or even ten banks of oars. The forces of Octavius were somewhat inferior by land. His vessels were much fewer in number, but of a lighter and more manageable class. Antonius adopted Patri and the Peloponnesus for his winter quarters, while he disposed of his vast armies for their better support along the coast of Epirus. But his navy suffered from sickness, and Agrippa contrived to throw the Caesarian forces across the Adriatic. From that moment defection commenced. Domitius was the first to abscond. Many princes of Asia followed his example. Antonius fancied himself surrounded by traitors. He distrusted even Cleopatra, and required her to taste in his company all the viands that were set before him. Some partial engagements first took place at sea in which Agrippa's skill gained the advantage. Antonius was quickly discouraged. He would have withdrawn his land forces further into the interior, but Cleopatra, fearing for her own retreat, dissuaded him from this project. 
a strange story is related that he sent octavius a challenge to single combat which was scornfully rejected thereupon he made preparations for flight and determined to lead a general attack on the caesarian fleet with no hope of victory but merely to gain an opportunity of escape for several days the agitation of the sea would not allow either armament to move at last on september second the wind fell the waters became smoother and with the rise of a gentle breeze the antonian galleys made for the open sea their huge hulks were ill-adapted for manoeuvring but they hurled massive stones from their wooden towers and thrust forth ponderous irons to grapple the unwary assailant the light triremes of octavius were on the other hand both dexterous and agile their well-trained rowers bore up or backed with rapidity and swept away the banks of the enemy's oars under cover of a shower of arrows the combat was animated but indecisive but while the antonian barges rolled heavily on the water incapable of attacking their puny assailants suddenly cleopatra's galley moored in the rear hoisted sail and threaded the maze of combatants followed by the egyptian squadron of sixty vessels antonius was not unprepared for the signal he leapt into a boat and hastened after her the rage and shame of his adherents filled them with despair many tore down their turrets and threw them into the sea to lighten their decks for flight yet many continued to fight recklessly or blindly too lofty to be scaled too powerful to be run down their huge vessels were at last destroyed by fire three hundred of them had been captured few probably escaped the land forces refused for a time to believe in their leader's ignominy and might perhaps have still maintained their position but when their commander canidius abandoned the camp for the caesarian quarters they offered no further resistance so complete a victory as that of actium has seldom been so easily gained the accounts we have received of the conduct of the miserable antonius come no doubt from the side of the victors but it is impossible to suppose that he lost so great a fleet and army so utterly except by his own misconduct octavius might now feel himself secure and proceed to establish his triumphant position with full deliberation he sent Mycenaeus and agrippa to italy the one to govern the city the other to control the legions in his absence while he advanced in person into greece and thence into asia receiving on all sides the greetings of the people and making arrangements for their future government he returned to italy in the course of the ensuing winter knights and senators together with multitudes of citizens came as far as brundisium to meet him he listened graciously to the complaints of his veterans sold his own effects and those of his nearest friends to satisfy them planted new colonies in the lands of conquered cities and finally promised an ample donative from the anticipated spoil of egypt with the beginning of spring b c thirty he was again in a condition to follow the track of the fugitives to them six months respite had been granted we can hardly suppose that the court of alexandria even though swayed by the vigorous arms of a great roman imperator 
could present any effective resistance to the whole power of rome if once brought to bear against it yet egypt abounded in wealth she was the emporium of the immense trade which converged thither from both the mediterranean and the indian ocean she was one of the principal granaries of rome and italy though her native population was feeble and unwarlike she could purchase the swords of the mercenary soldiers who swarmed on every side her rulers were skilled in statecraft and could intrigue at least with all the discontented rulers and peoples to whom their enforced submission to the great republic was ever odious we cannot but think that chiefs of real spirit and resolution might have defended themselves under such circumstances against any power that could be arrayed against them but it was not so antonius and cleopatra traversed the sea in the same vessel the roman landed at peritonium to secure the small garrison of the place the egyptian entered the port of alexandria with laurels displayed on her deck for fear of the tumult which the sudden news of her disaster might awaken there was neither love nor obedience awaiting her in her own capital her power rested on no popular foundation and of this she as the descendant of a long line of foreign potentates was no doubt well aware antonius himself was repulsed by a handful of roman soldiers the only relief for the despair which he began to entertain might be derived from the devotion fruitless though it was of a small band of gladiators who made their way through asia and syria to join him and only yielded to herod king of judea on the false assurance of their patron's death then it was that cleopatra proposed to flee into arabia but her vessels were destroyed by the wild inhabitants of the red sea coast again the wretched pair contemplated an attempt to escape into spain any quarter of the world seemed to them in their cowardly distress securer than their own dominion when this scheme too was relinquished antonius shut himself up in a solitary tower cleopatra made show at least of greater resolution and presented herself to the people in military costume as if to animate them to resistance but in private she abandoned herself together with her lover who had crept back to her embraces to her accustomed orgies while she made experiments with various kinds of poison and ascertained it was said that the most painless of deaths is that which follows on the bite of the asp the two helpless associates were not even true to one another each began to negotiate separately with the victor to antonius no answer was vouchsafed better hopes were held out to cleopatra if she would turn against her paramour octavius ever cautious even when the game was in his hands and anxious to secure her person to embellish his future triumphs continued to amuse and deceive her he allowed his agents to remind her of his youth and of her own well-tried fascinations when antonius gained a trifling but useless advantage over the first battalion which the enemy threw on his shore she deemed the time come to separate her interests from his and treacherously induced his ships to abandon him at the same moment and perhaps through the same treachery the last of his cohorts deserted him the queen had shut herself up in a tower constructed for her mausoleum fearing the violence of the man she had ruined 
she caused him to be assured that she had killed herself with the infatuated renegade all was now over and he determined himself to die with the aid of his freedman eros he gave himself a mortal wound but while yet living he learnt that she too still survived and causing himself thereupon to be brought to the foot of her tower he was drawn up to her by her women and there expired in her arms octavius at the same moment entered alexandria he charged an officer to secure the queen alive cleopatra refused him admittance when he scaled her chamber she pretended to stab herself he seized her arm and assured her of his master's kindness at length she suffered herself to be removed to the palace and there awaited an interview with the conqueror prepared to exert all her charms upon him with the bust of caesar presented to his view but the attempted seduction proved fruitless as might have been expected octavius kept indeed his eyes on the ground but he never lost his coolness and self-possession while she was flattering and caressing him he coldly demanded a list of her treasures which he required to be surrendered but for herself he bade her be of good courage and trust to his magnanimity cleopatra was soon made to understand that though her life should be spared she would be removed to rome and exhibited in the conqueror's triumph she resolved to die retiring to the mausoleum where lay the body of antonius she crowned his bier with flowers and was found the next morning dead on her couch her two women weeping beside her is this well exclaimed the dismayed emissary of octavius it is well replied carmion and worthy of the daughter of kings the manner of her death was never certainly known at the triumph thus deprived of the ornament of her living presence her image was carried on a bier the arms encircled by two serpents which served to confirm the rumour that she had perished by the bite of an asp brought to her as was reported in a basket of figs the child of the foreign woman by julius caesar was cruelly put to death to appease the exaggerated or pretended sentiments of roman nationality while the offspring of antonius and the matron fulvia was suffered to survive and retain his birthright as a citizen the dynasty of the ptolemies ceased to reign the macedonian conquest was replaced by the roman and egypt was finally reduced to the condition of a province octavius was master of the commonwealth and became the founder of an empire between these two results there is a great difference to be noted marius and pompeius had both been virtually masters of the commonwealth before octavius sulla and caesar had been so actually and had been confirmed as such by legal appointment the first triumvirate had dominated over it the second had extorted from its supreme authority and had demanded a renewal of its powers as long as its members could keep on terms of alliance one with another the commonwealth had fallen under a succession of masters and if from time to time it recovered a momentary independence it was only by a fitful struggle which showed its own intrinsic weakness and inability to rule itself rome might have fallen again and again into the hands of other masters each wresting the sovereignty from his predecessor by force and each yielding it in turn to a stronger successor the body politic might have been torn in pieces 
and either have been split into a number of states or perished in anarchy altogether the barbarians of the rhine and the danube might have arrived three centuries before their time but it was not to be so octavius founded an empire every age may produce many men who can destroy an empire but rarely is the man born who can found one it was the singular fortune of rome rather let us say it was the special providence which presides over all human history that presented mankind at this most critical epoch of their career with the individual man who could actually perform the work required for the maintenance of the ancient civilization in the overthrow of the so-called roman liberty there is doubtless something to regret but surely not much for roman liberty was little else than general servitude in the violence and selfishness by which this overthrow is effected there is much which the moralist may be called upon to denounce though in view of the vastness of the issue involved the historian will hardly pause to weigh nicely in the balance the crimes of one or other of the actors in the shifting scenes before him the defects and sins of the empire which followed may be estimated by those who undertake specially to describe it but the moral to be drawn from the epoch before us is simply this that rome had reached the moment when she could no longer retain her political liberty and that the struggles of her triumvirates could only end either in anarchy or in monarchy end of section twenty four read by pamela nagami in encino california september twenty twenty one end of the roman triumvirates by charles merivale